This episode of The Interchange is made possible by Absa and Timu. Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of The Interchange coming to you live from the Cliff Central Studios in the heart of Johannesburg. I am your host, Busim Kumbuzi. Now, in 2008, there was an outbreak of xenophobic attacks across South Africa. These sporadic attacks have continued throughout the years in a number of communities across the country. On one hand... It was thought that disappointment in the liberation project is strongly implicated in these attacks. Democracy was going to fulfill all these privileges that black people had dreamt of. But these promises remain unfulfilled to this day. This disillusionment is exacerbated by the split between political democracy and economic democracy, which is to say that democracy exists in contradiction to capitalism and economic equality. Throw in an influx of foreigners and you've got an explosive situation. On the other hand, though, if you look at the term foreigner in South Africa, it's loaded. The average South African views the term foreigner as an African or an Asian non-national. Other foreigners, particularly those from the Americas and Europe, often go unnoticed. They're often lumped up as tourists and seen as benefiting the economy rather than taking away from it. At this point, it's then important for us to note that xenophobia is the fear of an outsider. Afrophobia is the fear of a specific outsider, the black from the north of the Limpopo River. Because if foreigners were generally thought to be the main target, then anti-foreigners would have come out for all foreigners and made it known that they're all not welcome in this country. And so is it time to call these attacks Afrophobia? We find out in today's debate titled, This House Supports the Narrative that Xenophobia in South Africa Stems from an Inherent Hatred and Distrust of African Foreign Nationals. To discuss this, I'm joined by Anam Azar, who is a medical student and radical feminist, Bettina Bowing Baidu, who's a medical student and an anime fan, Sianda Baduza, a maths and economics student and introverted debater, and Eric Kazadi, an environmental management student and Instagrammer. Also with us is expert Sophie Zala-Kanza, a DRC Congolese South Africa-based co-founder of Sophie Akanza Foundation. She's a One Young World Peace Ambassador, an Alliance of Peace Building Scholar, and a brand South Africa Play Your Part. Hi, Sophie. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? It's good to have you with us in studio. Now, you've done extensive work in peace building and social cohesion projects. And I just want to find out from you, how important do you think it is in that line of work to unpack the term xenophobia for all of the ideas and the contradictions that it contains, especially in the context of South Africa? I think it's extremely important because xenophobia seems to be uh, more of a a buzzword Mm. and um, the actual issue that we face is Afrophobia. Mm. Um, As you mentioned, you know, um, I always use an example. If an American walks into a bank and if a Congolese person walks into a bank, their experiences are completely different. Mm. Um, And I, I, I do a lot of research. I speak to a lot of people and, you know, nine out of 10 uh, non-Africans uh, would describe South Africans as welcoming. Yeah. And then um, seven out of 10 African migrants would um, describe South Africans as hostile. Sure. So it's on two extremes. Mm. And mm. yeah, so mm. terminology is very, very important. Mm. Um, and I'm glad that people are moving into more of calling it Afrophobia. Um, and that's obviously not to say that xenophobia does not exist in mm. South Africa because, you know, there are Pakistanis yes. and Chinese people that have um, 
fallen prey yes. to this as well. Cool. Um, very interesting. And I hope that this debate is going to dissect all of those issues in depth. Now, before we get into the debate, I just want to go over the rules um, of the debate. We are following a BP format, British parliamentary format, which means that we have four debaters, two on each side. The first two are proposition and the last two are opposition. In terms of the speaking order, we're going to have proposition speaker one speak first and opposition speaker two speak last. Each speaker has four minutes to speak. In between then, the first and the last minutes are protected, but POIs can be asked in between. Debaters, are you ready? Yep. Yes. Cool. Anam, I start with you. Right. So as has been alluded to by what we heard in the opening, I think it's important that we recognize that the term xenophobia is no longer appropriate when we talk about the South African context because the kind of violent attacks that we see in South Africa are not just against anyone who is foreign. They're against a specific brand of foreign. They're against people who are from, for example, the DRC, from Congo, from Zimbabwe, from Malawi, and also people who are from like Bangladesh and Pakistan to an extent. We think then when we, what we what we need to clarify is two things. Firstly, we think when we talk about Afrophobia, we think this is an, an inherent hatred towards people of an African origin. We think it is an irrational hatred towards these people. We think, sure, there can be things like catalysts, right? So we think that what's going to come from the opposition is things like economic scarcity or unemployment is causing these violent attacks to happen. And we think while those may be catalysts, we don't think this is the root cause of of the Afrophobia in and yeah, of itself. Yeah. So, for example, if someone says a racist slur because they're angry, it is not the anger that is causing this um, them to be this way. One minute is up. We think, Anam? secondly, even in cases where people may be more vulnerable, we think that there are people who are even professors, who are doctors, who are school children, who are in pl- positions of... significant privilege that still experience Afrophobia. So we think that the term Afrophobia is specifically important. We think the root cause has to be something that is specific to the fact that they don't have white skin. Why is this the case? Firstly, we think that there's a perception that those who are of an African origin are people who are exploiting the resources of South Africa, whereas those who have a white skin are contributors to the economy. Why is this the case? We've seen this again where we talk about people who are professionals or doctors, even people who are owning spaza shops who are contributing significantly to employment and affordable goods are still targeted and and are still um, there's still this perception that they're not contributing to the economy, even in cases where this is obviously not true. We see even in cases where we talk about white monopoly capital, multinational corporations who are genuinely exploiting the South African economy don't get the same kind of violent reaction from South Africans as people yeah, yeah. who are genuinely Point. contributing towards the economy. We think there's harmful narratives that are created around uh, people of, of um, from different African countries. We think, firstly, this is just due to plain racism that is from colonial roots, right? We think that there's a perception that white people are somehow more valuable and people who are black are more disposable within the economy. We think the South African education system has failed to correctly identify that South Africa's success is largely due to a cooperation between African countries. It is seen as a product of European invasion as opposed to African unity. And we think that perception manifests in the fact that people from other African countries or African unity in general is not prioritized in our context. We think there are a lot of politics, such as the ANC and the DA, blaming foreigners for for a lot of their own failures. We think that there isn't engagement of barriers of legal entry that people have into South Africa, such as time and money. (laughs) 
we then think because we don't genuinely engage that there are a lot of value barriers to legally enter South Africa, a lot of immigrants are just lumped together as being illegal immigrants. And even the illegal immigrants are not engaged on their genuine struggle of having those barriers to actually achieve legal means to enter the country and to access things like labor laws. So we think ultimately, while they may be catalyst, at the end of the day, this is a very irrational fear. It is or an irrational reaction of violence, rather. We think it is a violence that doesn't exist with any other group to this extent. And it is a violence that is ultimately just so large in magnitude that we have to attribute it to something with, um, within our social structure that is leading us to be incredibly Afrophobic. We think ultimately, and if we don't... time is up. Unfortunately, thank you so much for that speech. I now welcome the first speaker of opposition, Eric, to respond. Thank you very much, Brucey. So the first thing to clarify is that there's a lot of common ground that the opposition shares with the proposition, right? So we do concede that the significant amount of violence is experienced by individuals who are perhaps of not as high a privilege or of not as high socioeconomic standing. But what we differ in terms of saying is that the reason why this is the case is not because of what they would have you believe. So they tell you that like MNCs and like exploitative mega corporations of individuals with a white skin are not viewed as being, um, are not exposed to this violence. We think that this is true, but first it's because of like their able to isolate themselves away from this violence, but second, it's also because of the proximity of lived experience. So it's easier for an individual to become triggered, as Anam says, by an individual when they're competing for these resources directly, as opposed to an individual that is far like far away from you and not ex and not of like equal proximity as a black immigrant would be but secondly we think that and more crucially it's not just about like the Mm. fact that you know they experience more violence or like black individuals of african of african descent experience more violence therefore it's afrophobia we think it's the irrationality and oftentimes the politicking of these of of these individuals so like we've seen with herman mashaba as the mayor of johan yeah, being yeah. very xenophobic in terms of yeah, that. We've yeah. seen like Kings Relitini inspiring and inciting this kind of violence. So the reason why this is, we say, is that it's for political reasons to deflect from their own state's failing. We've been told earlier on about how like the democratic promises have not come into, fru- into fruition. And oftentimes this means that the way for, that government and individuals in power are able to easily deflect that attention from themselves and their failings is to blame it to an individual yeah, that, yeah. In, that like uh, the people that they are failing can easily pinpoint because it's harder for like, it's it's easier rather for the state to say the reason why our public health system is failing yeah, is yeah. not because we are bad is because there is an overcrowding of individuals that's not to say that South Africans are Afrophobic that's to say that South Africans are being conditionalized by their rulers to actually like to actually lead to this victimization of certain individuals. We don't think that that's necessarily like, uh, that's necessarily the true characterization of individuals. But secondly, we think there's like also a very huge all engagement in a later, uh, after this. There's also like huge detriments to actually supporting this as a narrative. Because if we say it's a narrative, we are considering that it's something which is socialized within South Africa and something that's like not easily changeable. We think that the 
violence that is experienced is something that could be easily remedied by greater state provision and state like uh, fulfillment of their promises. If you make it a narrative, you make it a social problem as opposed to a problem that the state can actively solve by their own means. So therefore it becomes harder to hold the state accountable for that failing. We think that individuals aren't hating of individuals because of like their skin color. They are hating because they see the Competing for those resources directly. Uh, I'll quickly take one of you. But, okay. So secondly, though, we also, uh, thirdly, rather, we think there's also like a distinction that needs to be made in terms of like the ignorance that exists. And there's a difference between ignorance and hatred. So if we see with other countries, particularly like European countries, say for like East European countries, there is a strong tie into like their previous allyships. We see like England and France, although they have very different cultures, oftentimes celebrating that in unity. That's also something that African states have not been able to do. Like in our pan-Africanism, we failed to highlight and enlighten those like ally, uh, those allyships and um, strong connections that we should have. So on another level, it's also that there's the failure of actually educating individuals on that. So yes, we do agree that like education systems are failing to do that, but it's not because individuals hate uh, people. It's because they are being left no other alternative but the individuals that they trust to like govern them. Mm, time up. Yeah. Thank you so much, Eric. Bettina, I've been burning to respond. I now hand over to you. Yes, so I think let's firstly start off somewhere because I think what Eric is trying to do in his speech is make this debate seem as though only foreigners in townships and only foreigners who live in proximity to other South Africans in um, localized regions are ones that face Afrophobia. And that is not true. We see Afrophobia everywhere in our society. We see, for example, doctors um, that were attacked in KZN for being foreign nationals. Afrophobia is not just about proximity to other South Africans. It's about the hatred of blackness as a thing. About the hatred of blackness as a concept um, moving forward. So it's not just about them competing for similar resources because we see that more economically secure um, Africans still face Afrophobia on a daily basis. So it spreads beyond just proximity to these um, problems. The second thing he brings up is this idea that there are political reasons why Afrophobia exists, that the government is monopolizing this hatred um, for their own benefit. We think that the flame already exists. There's already a prevalent idea that the government is monopolizing. That idea is already in society. The government is just using what already exists to catalyze itself. It's not something that they are introducing. This hatred already exists in society and the government is using it for their own benefit and for their own power. For example, Sarah Maposa in one speech spoke about the need for foreign direct investment into South Africa, but then said she's going to cut down on spazzle shops that are owned by foreign businesses. Once, once again, an example of a distinction between white money and black Black money and black money being seen Bettina. as taken away from people as opposed to white money being seen as benefiting the people. So even if you want to tell us that we need to fix our government, you can't let it in isolation. When it's still a social issue through colonization, through um, apartheid that made blackness seem as though it was a vile entity, something to take away from you, to threaten you. That idea already exists and governments are using it. So to attack it on only one sphere is problematic because you have to address the social issues as well. We accuse the government shouldn't be doing this but to isolate this issue and say it's only a political issue
issue takes away from the fear and the hatred black people have for each other in society and makes us not address it in total. The third issue he had is that if we make it a social idea, we aren't able to address like political and governmental ideas. And that's problematic because we can do both. As a society, we can attack government's inefficiency and government's inability to educate people about the benefits of um, foreigners and also deal with the social stigma. Yes, Eric. So we think that, yes, we can do both, but it's about prioritization in this debate, right? It's it's much easier to mitigate and solve the like violent attacks at the point where individuals aren't seeing other like black individuals as an existential threat towards them. But that is the issue. They're seeing them as a threat. If you're not going to curb that idea, you're still Shame. going to have the violence erupting in those societies because this idea is a very entrenched situation. If we look at the power of colonization, what it did is it tried to separate blackness and saturate blackness so that whatever was most white was seen as most pure. One That's minute, why, yeah. for example, um, South Africans see blackness as vile because darker Africans are seen as not as pure. And this is a colonial idea which has been entrenched in society for so long. If we don't don't attack it, we can never truly cure xenophobic, we can never truly cure these issues. And we said in our speech that we do agree there are catalysts to xenophobia. We think those catalysts are also important to address, but we cannot ignore the social issue of blackness being seen as a taken away factor, something that is vile, something that is evil. Moreover, we spoke to you about all the reasons why this is the root cause, about the poor education our country, about the benefits Africans played in our system, about white supremacy being seen as beneficial. We talk to you about separatism in apartheid where um, the apartheid government made sure to keep black South Africans away from other Africans so, so South Africans view themselves as not African they say I'm going into real Africa what does that even mean they think that they are different to Africa and Africa is this poor backward other country that is taken away from them we have to address yeah, those issues Thank unfortunately you. heated Sianda good luck to you as you respond for your team and conclude the debate Okay, the first thing to say is that the proposition hasn't been the most genuine in terms of the context that we're talking about. Because we need to understand, number one, specifically who gets attacked the most. Number two, who are the perpetrators of the attacks the most. We never get any contextualization from the proposition as to who these individuals are. We say these are people who exist in very specific communities, in townships outside urban areas. So Pretoria, Durban, Johannesburg, right? And that that is important contextualization because it informs who we're talking about specifically it also means that then even the economic issues that we're talking about become more important within today's debate because these are communities with people who don't have access to resources these are communities where people are directly competing for resources we can say sure there are people who also face afrophobia outside of these communities but that is if anything just a trickle down of where the violence specifically starts which is in those communities specifically the, mo- the people who face it the most where it originated specifically especially the attack is in these poor communities We need to be genuine to that context Understanding that We then need to talk about Specifically what we think The narratives and the way in which we Then attack the issue is Because narratives also inform The way in which governments respond The prevailing narrative for the longest time Has been of Afrophobia Maybe we haven't used the term But we have used But what has happened in response to the attacks Has been education programs for example Into these communities Into like educating people about why um, Xenophobia is bad from a social standpoint. We can't do both because 
Because the one on the social response is the one that's most beneficial to governments because you don't have to take responsibility for how people think. But that's not the issue because the issue most, in most instances is the economic one. And there, if, if you force governments to acknowledge that the narrative stems directly because of economic consequences, it means you hold them directly accountable. We can't say it is because, um, individuals are inherently evil that people only uprise, for example, when we have, um, recessions or when there's, uh, Policemen fail to mon- to like have a monopoly of violence within those specific communities. That means the problem that we're talking about then becomes specifically government. We then also see specifically in the way in which um okay. the 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 way in which politicians themselves have responded to these issues is also important because when people like Erin Mutsoledi, who was um a minister of health, says um that the reason why our health system is this bad is not because of my failings, not because of failing government policies, but it's because specifically of foreign nationals, and that's what in Instigates attacks, it means, and the issue becomes an economic one. And it's, we can't do both yeah. because the social one removes government responsibility. It's the one they prefer the most. It's the one in which they have dealt with the most. Yes, Bettina. But the argument is cyclic because government says the reason you have economic hardship is because of foreigners. So how do they address it if they are pointing out foreigners as the reason for economic hardship? Exactly, which means also then the narratives that we need to talk about, we need to then say that the root of the problem isn't necessarily just Afrophobia, but the majority of the root is economic failure. Because if that becomes the prevailing narrative, it means that also the way in which government policies are created and directed is specifically to counter the economic problems that exist because of this One situation. That's incredibly important. Then secondly, right, another big contention in this debate was the one on who faces Afrophobia specifically and the distinction between white money and um, black money. What was important here to acknowledge is the fact that the reason why most of it is going to be for, with poor Afri- uh, foreign nationals is because other people exist within the these people's communities. White monopoly capital doesn't exist in these communities. They don't own shops within these communities. They are far removed, which means the people you're able to target best are the ones who are not, who are in your community, but um, the ones who are the closest to you, the ones in which these individuals understand the most. And that's why the attacks have been directed there. Also specifically, not necessarily even just African nationals, for example, because it's also been Chinese nationals, also been nationals from um, Pakistan, because here it's about proximity, not necessarily just about the distinction between white and black money. It's about who you see in your poor community. Yeah, and yeah. that's what this debate was about today. That people in these communities are poor. They're attacking poor people. That's the cause Shanda, of your time the is issue. up. Powerful. Um, Sophie, what are your preliminary thoughts on, on what both teams have just said? Um, I think something I was really hoping that would come out that I didn't hear is, you know, that Afrophobia does not only manifest itself in violence. Okay. I think there's a lot of other issues. Um, you know, a lot of times I hear South Africans blaming the government. Yes. But then they they fail to bring forward institutionalized Afrophobia because uh-huh. the government is doing an amazing job uh. at keeping African migrants from thriving in yeah. this country. Yeah. Um, just a few things, for example... Uh, asylum seekers can't open bank accounts. If you mm. can't open a bank account, you can't work. Mm. Um, you can't start a business. You can't. There's children that are not in school because um, they don't have the papers. They don't have yeah. the papers, and when they do have the papers, they get to schools that don't recognize the papers. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about healthcare, mm. every migrant has to pay. We do not get free healthcare. Mm. Yes, sometimes you're paying a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, mm. but you're still paying something. Mm. So there's a lot of things that the government is doing to mm. keep us 
from thriving. Mm. And that sometimes does throw us and we fall prey to, you know, exploitation and things like that. Mm. Um, and when it comes to the proximity issue, I think, yes, it's true. But for someone like me who's never lived in a township, mm. I've always lived in a suburb. Mm. Um, it was a predominantly Portuguese suburb. But as it got blacker, the Portuguese left and um, we we became prey to xenophobia but mm. I've never lived in a township mm. um, so I think there's I always say I don't know if South Africans have like secret meetings where they all sit <laughs> together and discuss these points because mm -hmm. everyone keeps bringing up the same points yeah. um, you know when I heard the word influx I was like <laughs> If you, if anyone here can go on Google now yeah. and search how many migrants are in South Africa, there's not one resource, not that one that can give you stats. Up, yeah. And they don't have to be stats from 2019, mm -hmm. from 2018, 20, nothing. Mm. There's nothing. Mm. So when we say our borders are pouring, mm. what does that mean? So if it at all is being made to quantify some of the claims that are being made. Exactly. Mm. And I think there's, there's a strong culture of justifying violence with poverty. That, um, if you poor and you loot, mm. it's because you're trying to feed your family mm. and that's okay. Mm. Um, and also narrow nationalism. Um, I think you pointed it out that South Africans have a superiority co uh, complex. Mm. Um, and that, you know, uh, it's us and Africa. You know, mm. when you hear a, a celeb coming and they say, I'm going to Africa, South yeah. Africans are like up in arms, say that you're going to South Africa and yeah. not Africa. But are you not part of the, the yeah. continent? Yeah. But I mean, Eric Sia, um, I'm sure at at this point you're 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 sitting in in your chair thinking, but yeah, you know, I you hear the idea of the institutionalization, but it speaks to and it plays into the point you're making about how this is a government level problem in the sense that if a government fails to reach its aspirations for its own people and create policies that make it conducive not only for its own citizens but for people coming into that country then those problems can simply be deflected to there is an influx. And no, if there's no stats, that's even better for the government. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. So definitely. I think this, for me, for, firstly, like this debate was a bit of a tough one because it's yeah. one where I had to debate against my own personal exactly. convictions, True. right? It's because I do understand the institutionalization mm. of the xenophobia or Afrophobia, yeah. if you want to, to yeah. call it that, because I have lived through that myself. Yes. But the thing here is, we ought not be too quick to paint people as being inherently hate, like hate-filled mm. and like distinguishing and wanting to, dis to distinguish themselves so much from the other that yeah. they would go to such extremes. Because what happens is that, yes, the government needs to be doing more, definitely. They need to be doing a lot of things to try and make like the environment more conducive. So things like not allowing migrants or like asylum seekers specifically to open bank accounts are also like a government level problem. It's something mm. that enables them to be able to still point and say, look, we are trying to cater for you, our citizens, by making things harder for other individuals so that you guys are our priority. Mm. So that's that kind of ratchet that even backs up the kind of like violence that we saw, the kind of Afrophobia that we see. It's because people see the government also being antagonistic towards yeah. foreign nationals. Mm -hmm. It becomes normalized. It becomes the norm. And that's what sips into it. It's all a trickle down, I think. Mm. So definitely the government has to be doing more. How important was it for you as 
someone who has a powerful story um, uh, coming into this country from from a, a different country and experiencing what she experienced. How important was it for you to speak on a side that wasn't necessarily representative of what you would think is intuitive? I think this is actually like this is the one of the few debates where I actually have to really apply myself because yeah. I live in a Congolese community. I yeah. hear the conversations. I hear the you know conspiracy theories of secret meetings that at any outbreak of violence the immediate thought is are we safe as foreign nationals and all of that like i live in that situation so for this debate specifically i had to remove myself from that i had to argue from the point of view of an individual who i think is also able to relate to the economic hardship that a lot of foreign nationals experience so Mm. for me i think it was quite powerful to try and, and actually prove to individuals that mm. no one is hateful. Mm. No one is going to such extremes to be a very antagonistic and violent individual who mm. like lashes out and lynches mm. another human being. It takes a lot. And I think that a lot comes from it being normalized as a culture when you see your government also saying the reason why you aren't getting like the insulin you need as a diabetic as a diabetic person is because, is because it, it has Zimbabwe. to go yeah mm. to go to someone else. So I tried to rationalize that away yeah. from my own lived experience. Bettina, as well. uh, Anam, what are your sentiments on, on responding directly to what Eric has just said? Yes, so I think the economic hardship is important. Um, yeah. I recognize it. I think it's, it has um, vast issues beyond xenophobia. We realize that. But we have to understand the power of conditioning um, that happens in society, the power of years and years of painting blackness mm. as something that is something that takes away from you. That is a very powerful aspect because I am in taxis all the time as a, as a foreign national. And the moment I say I can't speak Sepedi, the attitude automatically turns. Yeah. Everyone in that taxi looks at you like you are stealing everything from them. And I'm, and I'm just trying to get home. I'm yeah. just like, I'm just trying to get home, guys. <laughs> like, I think we can say it's economic hardship, but there's a lot more happening in South mm. Africa that is contributing to Afrophobia. Because if it's economic hardship, why are we not talking about white monopoly yeah. that is taken away from people more than anyone who owns a spazzo shop mm-hmm. in a township is how about shop pride that opens up in township areas and automatically removes local vendors from being able to sell their stuff? We're talking about real economic hardship. It's very mis um, the fingers pointing yeah. in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. So I think because of that, the hatred I think goes back to a lot of other things. And I think um, mm. the view of South Africa being separate, being superior, other Africans mm-hmm. as being poor and taking away from you something we still need to address. So we can. Try and pin it all on, you know, governmental um, not um, creating enough funds, not creating enough economic opportunity. But within ourselves as black people, we need to look within ourselves at issues of colorism, issues of African hatred, issues of black hatred that we need to exploit and ask, why do we feel that way about our other African nations? And and South African um, immigration law, even during apartheid, was obviously very narrow-minded and representative of the National Party's own prejudice uh, in the sense that many laws were created that were completely unpalatable to to anyone coming into the country, especially non, uh, non-Europeans. And to a large extent, although um, the democratic dawn has, made, has meant that things have changed, it's very difficult to undo um, a society that was, that was embedded with that kind of, you know, hate 
um, a, a, a government that essentially separated people in, in tribes and imposed ideas of superiority based on which group would have bigger houses or which group would have more access to schooling, or more access to welfare. So Bettina Anam, I'm getting the sense that you're saying that there's a systemic issue that stems from this history of colonialism, of apartheid, that's causing a deep-seated hatred that we're not necessarily, uh, that, that can't always be attributed to the economics of it. But if that's true, Anam, why is it so easy to pin down the conflict to specific communities? Why do people who live in gated estates, government officials often, not feel a sense of exceptionalism or hatred or, um, for, for people in the continent? If, if it was so true that the economics are a peripheral, then why is that true? So I think like it goes back to the counsel we've heard to say that even in instances where you live like in a safer community, you still do experience things like microaggressions. You still do experience a lot of like the same kind of hatred, even mm. if it's not explicitly mm-hmm. in violence. So if we link it to like, for example, the LGBT community mm. in the South African context, in a lot of townships, LGBT people face a lot of violence because they're just inherently more vulnerable in a vulnerable context in general. But mm. that doesn't mean that even in instances where they achieve a lot of economic prosperity, that unless those narratives are deconstructed, that they're not going to experience a different kind of oppression or they're still not going to experience any kind of um, hatred from other people. And, and I just wouldn't say within those communities, for example, microaggressions would also be something that someone from the Czech Republic or someone from Bulgaria or someone from uh, Serbia also experiences. So I think it goes back to the characterization that we gave that essentially we don't, I don't think that this, the same exists because I think that the where this hatred is coming from is mm. from two completely different roots. It's coming okay. from a very racist background. It's coming from a background of South Africa feeling that they're superior to the rest of Africa. So it doesn't, and even the stats back that up, like the stats that we received in the beginning mm. um, about how, you know, most why tourists feel that South Africa is a very friendly place. No, 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 it's saying, yeah, so it's a big number. I think the stats just don't back that up. And I think causing, I, I think the main harm for me is just that using this and speaking about how this is just due to the economics kind of removes the urgency around it because then the solution just becomes, well, we'll just make South Africa better. We'll make mm. everything better in South Africa, which isn't a direct response to the urgency and the specificity of the problem that we're experiencing. And I also think that like when Eric speaks about like, well, no one's really like born hateful. No one's just inherently hateful. I think we've spoken a lot about like how there is a socialism and there is like a socialized hatred. And mm-hmm. there is a lot of hatred that is socialized in a lot of groups. Politics, yeah. yeah. And I think the only way to undo that is to unlearn that. And the only way to unlearn that is accountability, which I think a lot of South Africans don't feel a sense of accountability because we feel as though because we are victims of a lack of resources. Mm. We can't also be perpetrators of hatred. Oh, can I jump in? That there? is big, um, Sophie. I'm just. Uh, I want you to jump in um, right after Sianda speaks because okay. I want you to round up all of the views that they've yeah. given and to leave us on, on on a note that we can all learn from. Sianda, you were you were shaking your head as Anam was speaking, um, but specifically in your speech, you were you were you were doing more than just humanizing um, the people that you know, proposition has defined as perpetrators perpetrators in this debate. 
what I, I also want to ask you is, I, I want to believe you, but why is it easy for the, the South Africans that you characterize in your speech to buy into foreigners are taking jobs and committing crimes as opposed to other reasons that have been given for the same mm-hmm. thing? So, for example, when we're told that like illiteracy is a, is a challenge in our communities, what kind of action have we taken versus Zimbabweans are taking away jobs and us immediately burning their homes, killing their children? Why is the outrage dif- different for essentially what you've you know described as an economic problem okay i think um i think one these people are desperate mm. like very desperate and i think so i don't when i try to humanize them it's not that i'm trying to like justify the position that yes. they come under but the way in which even reporting takes place when we report on these communities most of the times people don't really talk about the economic circumstances yeah. of these individuals. Yeah. Most of the times we don't get reports on what um, politicians said to instigate specific violence. So, for example, mm. two weeks ago, there was there were riots in Hillbrow, mm. right? Mostly it started out against like a protest against police turned into like violence against foreign nationals. And most of that was triggered by comments that Herman Mashaba made, comments that he's been making ever since he became mayor in Johannesburg. Mm. So I think one, these people are desperate. And I think also it's very easy for you to manipulate individuals who what are desperate. desperate. And I think also the other like other big ideas or like um like white monopoly capital are maybe a bit abstract to these individuals because it's not who you like um directly with. interact with and engage who with does every white monopoly capital single look like in my community. Yes. Though? So it would be easy for me to blame um a shop owner in my community than to blame a government that I've been voting for for years, for yeah. example. Because I think that um because you can also just see that like Maybe development is happening elsewhere, but the reason it's not happening in my community isn't because because the government isn't delivering specifically to my community. It is because of the people in my community who are directly taking away um, the opportunities for me. And I think another point of context that was important, I felt, was kind of ignored, was also why the violence mostly starts in urban communities, yes. so in Johannesburg, in Durban, versus for example, why it doesn't happen in rural communities. Yeah. It is because here's also where like um there's a lot of politicking, especially a lot of competition in the local government mm-hmm. scene. And it's also mm-hmm. where governments are at maybe at the most if effective or most efficient outside of the poor communities. Yeah. So you're able to see development happening outside of your community. You then can't um I don't think you'd be able to conceptualize then reasons why it wouldn't be happening to you specifically mm. If that's the case, so then you just blame the person that's mm. easiest to you, the person that you've been told is your enemy for the longest time. Mm. So that's why I just think we can't ignore the economic narrative. And I also think it's very easy for us to just dehumanize them, say say they're hateful, move away and condemn them. And Because even the condemnation doesn't come from people in their community specifically. It comes from people it outside. It comes from people outside. So Twitter, we send police to those communities, we silence them, yeah. they're going to be quiet. The next time there's a recession, they're going to be, it's going to be the same people yet again. Yeah. Nothing's ever going to change. So I don't think the social narrative wouldn't be as powerful in solving the problem. But acknowledging like the economic... um problems that exist in those communities and governments being the one who do this specifically would lead to greater change, I think. Wow. Sophie, I'm going to let you have the last word, but I also just want you to, um, I want to throw in a dimension here because the average black South Africans engagement with Africans from the continent doesn't only start post-1994, but even before then when um, we were isolated from the rest of the continent and exiled um, in many instances, would you say even those interactions were marked by 
a kind of Afrophobia. Because if, if, if we say it's inherent, then we also need to analyze that dynamic. And potentially if we feel that even before then, um, you know, the interactions were, were, were okay and the interactions didn't represent a kind of exceptionalism, then perhaps it is important to analyze and to give credit to the arguments made by opposition, analyzing why that shift has happened. Mm. So I'm, I'm giving you that, that burden um, to also analyze that in, in, in your closing. Wow. I think that that's a very difficult question because um, you don't hear people who have lived in exile share their experiences. Mm. And it's something that almost angers me. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, I'm very uncomfortable using that as a, a reason to make people humans. Mm. Um, why is it because I helped you when you came to my country that you have to help me? It shouldn't be based on that. It shouldn't be based on that. Mm. Like, why is it that when it comes to African migrants, Ubuntu is non-applicable? Mm. Mm. So for me, it's about being a decent human being. It's mm. not about um, you came and we helped you and now you must help us. Um, but I also think it's as, you know, because I came to South Africa when I was three years old. Mm. Um, so I, I don't know the DRC, mm. but people can hear how I speak and say, oh, but you're South African, right? Yeah. But then when they know where I'm from, it's a 360 yeah. turn. Okay. Mm. Um, and there are things that as migrants, we can do better. Mm. And, uh, number one would be for us to, to, to realize that South Africans have valid points. Mm. Um, for example, saying that it's hate, mm. it doesn't take away from your humanity. Mm. So I feel a lot of people are scared to say that it's hate and they look for every other reason under the sun, mm. but it's, it's, it's hate and it mm. is inherited because, you know, I have five-year-olds that I'm trying to get to go to school. They don't want to mm. go to school because they've been called names. Mm. In that instance, it's not an economic situation. They're not competing mm. for anything. And you know, the word competing really like fires me up because mm. are we competing for the yeah. same things? Mm. You know, I hear people talk about grants, but refugees don't get grants. Yeah. Asylum seekers don't get grants. Mm. People with permanent residence don't qualify mm. for grants. So there's a lot of misinformation and that's why platforms like these are so important because we need to, you know, come out and say, but I don't get a grant. I don't go to the hospital for free. Mm. And people want to believe this so much so that they can say mm. that these are the things that we're doing, but it's not. Mm. Um, so I always end off with the solutions or rather the work that I do. And that's I host Afrophobia Conversations where I bring in I go into tense communities and bring wow. the migrants and the locals together to talk. And mm. it's just about talking. It's just about starting conversations. Cause mm. a lot of times as migrants, you know, um, we congregate because we have this false sense of security. Mm. We feel that if we stick together, we'll be safe, mm. which is not true. Mm. Cause when it comes, it comes. Mm. So we need to integrate. Mm. And I'm not saying that integration is the solution. But it's definitely a step it's in a the step right, in right direction, direction yeah. because I've lived in South Africa for 25 years mm. and there's never been an Afrophobia awareness campaign. Mm. I I don't see people like me on TV. Mm. You know, I take it back to when I was little, there were soul buddies and there was a refugee. Um, yeah. There was a refugee family on that show. 
but that was the first and the last time. So we need to get that into mass media. Mm. Um, you know, when there was an issue with Duduzani Zuma, the first thing they did was point out that he's not South African because he had a foreign parent. So that is used as an, as an insult, as an attack. This is why he is like this. Exactly. So if he was a pure breed, chances are he wouldn't be a criminal. Yeah. You know? So a little migrant child <laughs> hearing something like that, that's detrimental. To their own psyche. Exactly. And yeah. then a South African child didn't think that that's how they and justify, them, yeah. you know? So it's little things like that um, that we're trying to work on mm. and, you know, getting governments and especially the police to come to the party because everyone is bringing their own prejudice into um, the situations. And, you know, even community leaders are not letting you into these communities to address these issues. Mm. And um, I think the last thing I would say is that uh, we really need to adopt <laughs> proactiveness instead of reactiveness. Mm. Yeah. That's powerful. Um, for me, Personally, so I, 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 I truly believe that xenophobia reflects our country's history of isolation. As a country at the southernmost tip of Africa, South Africans are fond of referring to themselves um, and or to the continental counterparts as, counterparts as Africans or as people from Africa. And many business ventures and news publications and events have fueled this um, because when they aim at local audiences, they routinely speak about going to Africa. Um, and of course, this narrow mindedness suffered by both black and white South Africans is a byproduct of apartheid because for, for, for black people, apartheid was this insidious tool used to induce self-hate and to tribalize people from the same race. Um, and for white South Africans, apartheid was this false rubber stamp um, that they are superior as a race. Um, and I think it's these two conceptions that give rise to this South African myth that we're not part of the African continent, but we're a different place that just happens to be at the tip of that same continent. Um, and and long after the, the scourge of apartheid, I think it's clear that we're fueling um, this prejudice, even in the present. It remains to be seen whether we'll break away from it whether we're going to rid ourselves of the horrid prejudice anchored in our past, but that is seemingly fueled in our present, um, presently by government leaders, by officials, by role models, by people who stand in the media and hold on to views that are problematic. Um, in Rest of the Earth, uh, a book by Franz Fanon, it talks about a situation in which the oppressed become willing participants in their own oppression. It happens all the time, and it takes its roots in slavery particularly how slave owners exploited the difference among slaves and used those differences to sow fear, distrust, and envy. It's a tool that's been used by any um, government that tried to institutionalize some kind of um, power over, over a group. Um, but equally, it's interesting to ask ourselves if this social phenomena would find expression in our country if the government provided services, if the government provided quality education, quality health care, if the government provided jobs, it's easy for people to hate the person they think is taking away from them. But what if there was nothing to be taken away? I think that's the question that we have to ask ourselves today. That was The Interchange, Episode 7 on xenophobia, and we would love to hear your views. This was another thought-provoking debate made possible by APSA and Simon, amplifying the voices of young people. Decide for yourself. Is South Africa's exceptionalism the root cause of our xenophobia. The Interchange, seeing Africa through a youthful lens.